Well, welcome back to another episode of Fukin Conversation. I'm so excited uh, to have Dr. Jennifer McDonald from the University of Regina. Dr. McDonald's uh, research uh, contributions or her areas of research are, are broadly uh, focused in the areas of social change, ecological healing, and truth and reconciliation. As a researcher and educational researcher and teacher educator, She's committed to collaborating with communities, generating new knowledge for planning and teaching in ways that approach place, teaching, learning, relations, wellness, narrative, and curriculum differently. At a time of ecological crisis, her research, seeks, her research program seeks to provide increased consideration, discussion, and education to help renew coexistence between humans and the natural world while simultaneously contributing toward restoring right relations between indigenous and settler people on the share land. So, so happy to have you here this afternoon in Ottawa on the unceded ancestral territories of the Algonquin people. I mean, the time difference is what, an, an hour and a half or two hours in terms of where we're at? I should uh, know this. Two hours. Two hours. It's two hours. So, so it's still, yeah. I can say it's still morning for you. <laughs> But in the winter time, it changes, so we don't uh, change our clocks. You guys, anyway, so you don't you don't change your clocks, yeah. So well, how are you? How are you doing? Like I like the last time, I had any kind of uh, virtual communication with you was during your uh, doctoral defense, which I huge congrats again. I'm just I was so privileged and honored to be able to read your work and and contribute to that conversation. How's the transition been from? Uh, Calgary to uh, Regina. Hey, thanks, Nick. Um, it's Nicholas. It's great to be here today with you. And uh, yeah, the transition from Calgary to Regina. It's been a couple months now. So, and we're in like full swing new school year, three weeks in. But it has been a bit of a change of pace. Different cities, different relationships, different ecologies. Uh, but finding my way slowly, sometimes with like deer in headlights, but I'm loving the students and loving where I'm living and walking along the Luskana Parkway. So, so far it's been really good. You were hired, from what I understand, in uh, browsing the University of Regina Faculty of Education website. Mm. And, you know, I've got to go do a little bit of my own research there. So <laughs> this is an outdoor education position? Uh, <laughs> or is it, I mean... From what I saw, part of it's that, but what, like, how are you framing or how have you come to understand what you are expected to do in relation to what you'd like to do? Yeah, this, that's a good question. Um, I am hired, uh, it was physical education, outdoor education, and land-based learning. Um, And my background is in outdoor education, but my very first degree was uh, phys ed, kinesiology, so I have some background in that piece, and this semester I'm teaching an introduction to phys ed, physical education, teaching and learning course, and then an outdoor education course. So, so far, I am getting a lot of experience in the outdoor ed piece, and that's where I really want to contribute. But I know that outdoor education often fits within the phys ed curriculum, you know, filling obligations there. In the future, really want to open up that more interdisciplinary ways of understanding place um, and experiencing place to invite all students into this conversation. So not, maybe not just the students who have chosen kinesiology or phys ed as a, as their program of study. Yeah. I, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that and, and the, and the work you sent me and I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, but I, before we do so, I just, I just want to ask a little bit more because mm-hmm. I think for some of the listeners to the podcast, um, especially I'm thinking of grad students or doctoral students making the transition to mm. finishing up their programs and making the move like you did. How was that like in terms of the the timeline for doing your defense, which again was amazing and, and, and I was so lucky to be part of that. But I know that at that meeting and that time, trying to navigate transitioning to addressing some of the edits that people might ask, like even though you were only asked to do minor ones, but trying to be in that headspace, but then also try to prepare yourself to make the transition from a place, at least in your work that you've described, that you've spent some time and and developed uh, close relations uh, in terms of the different landscapes around the university to now being in uh, Regina. 
Yeah, the timeline was pretty quick. I um, had accepted this job in May, and then the defense was in July, and it was on like the Friday of a long weekend, and I was moving like on the Saturday morning, so it all happened pretty quickly. And then deeper, like that deeper question of, wow, how do you start building relationships in a new place? Like I had had spent considerable time, especially with the pandemic and being on my own and like very around the university and doing lots of walking, I had built a strong connection to that place and uh, people there. So then coming here um, to a brand new place where I know nobody um, is a bit different. uh, And, but I think what I learned through cultivating those relationships in Calgary is that I can cultivate those relationships in this new place and it there's protocol involved and it takes trust and time so I can't expect it to feel the same in two months that it's going to take maybe a couple years to uh build relationships and have you had time to let it uh, sit in like or did you like when I say sit in or sit you know like sit with your the final version of your doctoral dissertation that you submitted or is it like you you kind of tucked it away on a desk and you're like I will come back to you <laughs> whenever that is and I feel <laughs> that I have time I mean you're to read out the title of your your dissertation wayfinding for the continuation of life a curriculum inquiry to enrich experiences mm-hmm. and renew relations in outdoor education and then in the uh, table of contents just briefly I, w- I wanted to highlight that you know you have you, you have an introduction called orienting uh, the inquiry, chapter two's placing uh, places living curriculum, chapter three treaty teachings as a compass, chapter four wayfinding to engage relationality, and your chapter five process and practices of wayfinding, and chapter six wayfinding summaries, and then interpreting significant waypoints. So you have like and then mapping kingship relationality. So there's a lot of relationality and mapping outward, and I can see that in some of your other works. Have has that work and your studies that you've done in your dissertation in terms of how you how that's informed the way in which you've related to the kind of relationships with more than human world or elders or knowledge keepers or the land uh, in Calgary, how has that informed perhaps your approach to the transition to how you're starting off in uh, Regina, both at the university, but also in terms of your your experiences with place? Yeah, well, that's a really big question. I am fortunate that um, the course that the courses that I'm teaching this semester, well, one of them is introduction to outdoor education. So I'm quite fortunate that a lot of what I have learned uh, in that study, I could then apply um, and or try to apply and translate and bring other bring younger students into uh, during my work here. So in the first month of teaching. There's been a variety of ways in which I have been able to bring some of those wayfinding principles that I end with into practice and try to do my best with those. But on a personal note, there hasn't, I think like coming into an academic position, there hasn't been a lot of personal time. It's just kind of been like trying to figure things out as best I can. Uh, But I... I'm really fortunate that um, the University of Regina shares uh, campus with the First Nations University of Canada, and I have been taking a Cree language course, and I've been my fourth week now, so that's been a highlight of my experience so far and learning the language of this place and um, because it's so connected to ecology. And I think just doing a lot of walking. Uh, last weekend, I went out to Treaty Days in Fort Capel and uh, participated, well, I didn't participate, but I observed and talked to others at a powwow. And this weekend, I'm going back to Fort Capel with um, some colleagues to do some walking and learn some stories and history. So just trying to find time when I can to learn more about this place and spend time uh, with the ecology. I'm fortunate that my window of my where I'm currently sitting, faces out into Wascana Parkway so I can see the geese that are migrating and um, see the sunrise every morning. So just trying to take time when I can. 
you know, in terms of that, do you see it as a, a certain kind of uh, wayfinding? And I, and I wonder for, for, again, for listeners, if you could mm. speak a little to what it is by, uh, what do you mean by wayfinding and how did you take that up in your prior work? And, and how might that be informing the kind of trans, transitions that you're doing now? And, and again, I, I don't know necessarily focusing on transitions. But one of the things that I really appreciated about your, your dissertation was the time and care you took to mm. craft the stories about the students that you accompanied on um, certain uh, trips across the land. And uh, it really made me think, like, you know, we had just finished up and my son, who's uh, 12, he's turning 13 this month, we had planned uh, a six-day canoe trip uh, around uh, the northwestern part of Algonquin Park. And uh, just kind of thinking about the stories that you shared and that whole process of teaching and learning with students or, or trying to create opportunities for them to relate to the land and, and each other and to themselves in a different kind of way uh, than they might have experienced, say, living in, an, in, in within the, the, the kind of social and cultural context of an urban center. Mm-hmm. Uh I know again another big question, um, but I, I maybe coming back to, you know, like now that you've 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 had some time mm-hmm. to maybe think think about it, and obviously, well, I don't know because you say you're so busy, but how are you situating the concept, or how might you situate the concept of wayfinding for for? Mm-hmm. So, going back to my dissertation study, um, wayfinding really emerged for me quite organically. I tell a story of being on a foggy day with a group of students on a kayak trip and uh, us triangulating our position to move along the coastline in the fog uh, because we were trying to meet this ferry. But how was the, one of the instructors, I didn't have a compass to follow along. So I had to start paying attention to more what was going on around us and the winds and the currents and the waves and the sounds of the birds. Um, in that in that moment, as an educator, it really struck me how much I tend to rely on a compass, and but how it, everything has to be predetermined when we do that, and we have to follow this the correct bearing for a certain amount of time, and then change bearings, and it's all predetermined. And if we don't follow that, then we could end up out at sea because we because of visibility. So I was trying to play on that metaphor in education because I often see the same thing happening with curriculum plans, but then all these lived components can come in, can really inform stories and what we do together if we allow them to, if we attend to them. Wayfinding for me, and then once that happened with the fog, I also kind of went back to the work of Cynthia Chambers and uh, tried to uh, bring her wisdom into my study as best I could and also try to like add on to it in in connection to my context but it really became about finding one's place and often feeling out of place but also attending literally to our to the ecology that we're in so as a non-indigenous person I was also working with um Elder Bob Colonel and Dr. Dwayne Donald. So my study really became about these two different threads that I brought into dialogue and wayfinding um, as a Canadian non-Indigenous educator coming to learn about treaty and holism and kinship relationality. And then with these students on these extended wilderness journeys and how they paid attention to place and tried to bring those into dialogue. So I found that wayfinding could be a curricular experience and could allow us to dwell differently in the world. Um, If we stress the importance of when we are there and where we are and come to know the local knowledges that reside in the places where we are, and that if we try our best to allow knowledge to emerge kinetically um, in relationship to movement and in different places and at different times and through different seasons. And that really involves letting go of our familiarity and um, being and embracing the unknown. So I guess I just wanted to like give some context to how I came to wayfinding and then how I saw it at the end of my dissertation. And now in my practice here in Regina, I'm now working with 
you know, first, second year, some third year undergraduate students in outdoor education um, who, for, for some of them, they have come into uh, outdoor education as phys ed majors and have a particular mindset of recreation and trying to instill like a deeper philosophy of being with plays. And I think that uh, what, how I'm trying to take up wayfinding is to give them opportunities to experience it for themselves and not like to force it on them or not tell them a particular way that they need to do something, but giving really open-ended tasks. And um, so far, I think they're a bit scared by it and a bit confused, but I, uh, <laughs> I really, I believe in it. So I really want to try to endure it with them. And uh, hopefully by the end of the course, they will like have deeper insights about place and maybe their relationships. They're all doing different place studies. And it's interesting to me what has struck me so far. And I think it's just coming to know this new place as an outsider and how interpretations of place change. So for me, it was always being by the water or going to Algonquin Park. But here I find it's about being on the farm or or being on a sports field, a lot of the students play football and they all want to do their place investigations like on the sports field. And I, so trying to unpack like what place means and how in natural places compared to man-made places or wild places and, but then there's wildness inside us. So there's all these different layers that we're trying to unpack together. Yeah, I, I mean, and I can see that uh, work that you did there come out uh, earlier in your book chapter called uh, a poor mm -hmm. curriculum in urban spaces and atlas for ethical relationality i really enjoyed uh reading that and even just the tracing mm -hmm. it back to william pinar and madeline gramay's uh seminal text uh, uh, toward a poor curriculum and and you troubling the kind of predetermined experiences within the educational system predetermined relationships with the more than human world per se outside the school. And uh, I think you say here, um, you know, as I consider my journey with this urban terrain, I noticed that we all inhabit the world differently and bring multiple memories, perceptions and emotions to daily encounters. Uh, against my learned yearning to plan and control consequences, I see that my lived experiences are often filled with ambiguity and are never predictable. Yet as I reflect on my daily ventures, mm -hmm. I see my own tendency to, gr uh, to grid come into view. I usually take the quickest route based on the visual map held in my mind. The stories cutting across the grid of my routine remind me of William Pinar and Madeline Gramez's poor curriculum. Uh, as one, quote, stripped of technology, structure instead of by dialogical encounters, a structured instead of dialogical encounters, solitude and sustained study, uh, here I see the potential for nur nur nurturing encounters with place through attuned spatial movements. And <laughs> you go on to ask a series of, of, of questions. And then uh, later on, uh, you write, while my experiences have largely been shaped by linear engagements and representations, Indigenous insights and understandings of place have inspired me and call the limits of my spatial relations into question. Slowing down, paying closer attention to place through which I am moving has enhanced my practice of ethical relationality which uh, Papachist Cree scholar Dwayne Donald states, quote, is an ecological understanding of organic connectivity that becomes apparent to us as human beings when we honor the sacred e ecology that supports all life and living, um, and quotation. So I just, you could see even in your own writing that what you're asking students to consider that you've done, you, that you've done that work, you're doing that work, like the whole thing about slowing down, do you, because in other works, and also you shared this in your dissertation about your own mm -hmm lived experiences on the land, whether that's canoeing, kayaking, or hiking. In your own past experiences, did you take for granted that it forced you to slow down until you started to think about it? Or was that always something in place that you felt that it, it, that it provoked you to do that? And I'm just asking that question, I was just curious, because like, again, when I went with my son this time, and we were together, we'd have conversations, but it definitely the slowing down and being like disconnected from, you know, I say disconnected, disconnected from the, the social media and all that tech that we're plugged into, but reconnected or interconnected to being in the moment of that place and, and slowing down, certainly notice the difference and just the way in which my son and I relate to each other while doing that. So I, 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 
I, I, I'm curious, like in terms of that work and the work that you've done, you know, was it something that you noticed prior or is it through the kind of research and scholarship and thinking that you've come to the sensibility around the importance of slowing down and paying closer attention to place? Well, it's definitely something that has been part of my practice, but I don't know if I labeled it or named it before, but I, I think it was always there, but it was in not until someone pointed it out or I was able to point it out with the scholarship that I was mm. engaging in or the guidance of um, Elder Cardinal and Dr. Donald that I really saw it and I saw like how that lives and works in the outdoors with students, but how and what I feel like when I am not slowing down, when I'm not taking that time. But I love how you shared your experience with your son and how that slowing down happens and we don't need to say, Oh, I'm slowing down now. Like it, those sort of experience, those experiences bring up, um, like bring just a slowness to them. And, um, I find with in past trips with students, I always call it the three day hump and I don't feel like they slow down until oftentimes like the third day because, Students bring some, oftentimes, bring anxieties with them or expectations, what the experience might be, or like we just have to form our relationship together and our process together. So then there's all like these like sort of things we need to work out. And then oftentimes like that third day, I find there's like a hump that we cross and then like things just kind of like gel and like start to flow a bit more organically. And I find then as a, as the educator, like it's easier, like it it just slows down and I don't have to talk all the time. I find in the first few days I had to do a lot of talking and like awkward, like icebreaker stuff and like try to get the students to connect with each other. But then after that hump, it's okay not to talk in a canoe for an hour and it, we're just in an experience together and enjoying the flow. So that's always been something that's been on my mind and that I try to cultivate. So it is a type of slowing down, but I don't know if I'd always have labeled it as that. Yeah. And, and I mean, maybe we use that language because it's in comparison to something else, right? Like the, Mm. the um, being in like, what would it mean to slow down in an urban center? Like, so if you leave, (laughs) Like, and why is it that thing that there's that comparison to say that we're slowing down? And, and I wonder, because in your one piece too, you talked about the way in which uh, the urban geography is set up in Calgary, for example, it requires you to have a certain kind of mode of transportation to get to different places in a, uh, in, within a certain mm-hmm. temporal framework, as opposed to having a, maybe a different temporal mm-hmm. framework to get somewhere, say, for example, by canoeing and where you're trying to get. I still feel, I don't know for you, that uh, when you're doing Algonquin Park, for example, and you've kind of pre-booked a, a site, you still feel kind of like a certain pressure <laughs> to get somewhere as opposed to saying, hey, we've got 10 days, we're going to hop on this yeah, river sure. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we get to where we get yeah. <laughs> by 10 days and we give ourselves a couple more days, right? Like, I just wonder like that to get. <laughs> and especially like when you know the, when you know the good sites and you want to try to get to the best ones, you don't want to be in the swampy sites with all the. Well, that's for mosquitoes. sure. And, and, uh, and like, we, this yeah. is the second time we did that trip. So we had, a, we, for one, we had more confidence that we, in terms of relying on each other and what was expected and also mm-hmm. kind of what we needed to do to set up. I, I think for us, the biggest thing, and I don't know for you in terms of thinking about that when you're, when you're going out into land is like number rule number one, stay dry. And <laughs> so to do whatever it takes to stay dry, especially on, on uh, canoe trips. But, uh, but also did, you know, you talked about flow in, and I, I can't imagine in terms of being with a larger group, because I, I really appreciate and enjoy just my son and myself and, and the two of us going at our own pace. Mm-hmm. But I always love to, like you said, like when you get into that groove where you're not talking to each other, but also that flow of of paddling together, and then when the canoe kind of just uh, gels and and you're and you're kind of moving as one, even though there's two of you and going somewhere. So I I I, I mean mm. I really try to take well, not try, but I, I this time I really appreciate and took note of those moments where 
um, we weren't talking, we were paddling, the water was calm, but we, that the whole, we were moving as one. Like, and I don't know for you with your groups, when you, when mm-hmm. you've gone, um, that's taken place. And I wonder in, in similar ways to think about, um, a classroom community when you're together and doing something, if that, if, if there's something similar there or not. Mm. Yeah, I, in my dissertation work, I talk about three different types of trips. So I, with a younger group of students, I did a canoe trip and a hiking trip. And then um, with an older group, I uh, was with them for 28 days on a sea kayaking trip. And what was interesting in regards to flow and about that sense of movement and responding, like our body's response to the movement was the different modalities in which we move and in the sea kayak we were all by ourselves but in the canoes we were always had a partner or another or we were in like three people per canoe so there's a different type of dependence on each other and in that canoe it can be so frustrating if the if you're at the back and the person at the front is just like not putting their paddle in <laughs> uh, but at the same uh, let's time, just say that happened at different times <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, but on a canoe trip, you're, um, sort of on your own. And as the instructor, I can give some guidance on efficiency of paddling. And, uh, just cause I'm keeping in mind that we need to do this for 28 days. And I can see that you're probably going to injure yourself if like, you just try to use your arms the whole time. But then in hiking, we're also on our own and we're traveling as a group, but we're always dependent on sometimes like the slowest person we have to walk as to keep like the slowest person in mind so as the instructor i'm always trying to balance that some people will want to like run ahead and then but that some people might not have the physical ability to walk at that pace so it's always been a bit of a tension and i think that finding those ways to have openings for all speeds um like relates to the classroom and um, and how, especially when we were talking about place before and having, because everyone arrives sort of at place with a different story and creating space where everyone can mm. come to their own story and have their own story relate to what we're doing and where we are um, and when we are doing it. So that's one way I see that that flow sort of connects, but just keeping in mind like the the embodied knowledge that comes from those moments of felt flow um, and pointing them out to people because sometimes they don't realize that that's learning like they see it as oh we did something really fun today um, in in class and that but there's really important learning going on we weren't just going out canoeing but there were all these connections that we made so sometimes they need guidance and a bit of like pointers to like see the connections yeah well and i wonder too in terms of a class setting uh one thing to learn how to canoe and go for the day or for a few hours versus um i know for my son and i again and and like look he's 12 but he pays so much more attention when we go on the trip to uh weather and uh so trying to understand Mm -hmm. even the change of um the conditions throughout a day so for example um, as you know, like in the morning when, when it's a certain temperature and it's calm, it might be the best time to get out. So you're trying to get out because you know, when, once the, the lake and the land cools or heats up the the wind picks up just naturally and, and you get bigger, bigger waves or the, the lake's less calm, depending on when you're going and trying to take note of that mm-hmm. in terms of when you get out and, uh, also thanking the, uh, Thanking, thanking the, the the sky gods for when the wind's behind you too. If it just happens, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about you if, uh, for trips, but like, so just paying attention and taking note of that. And we actually did quite a bit more fishing uh, this mm-hmm. time. And and uh, Jonah, he really wanted to fish. He wanted to. His, his he's he's like, Dad, you know, I've turned twelve. I want to be able to fillet uh, fish, and I want us to cook our fish. And so we did. And might have chosen a couple of campsites that were better fishing grounds than the best campgrounds. <laughs> and, uh, so was, that was the joke between him and I is like, he wanted these uh, islands that had a good, 
a rocky point where he could fish off like throughout the day and and that there was fish and i'm like but we're going to be sleeping on rocks for her. <laughs> and it's going to be a lot harder for for us to think about going and uh doing our firewood collects in a in a sustainable way because you know like for and so, as you know in some islands like you you have to actually leave mm. the island to go make go and get get your firewood so i don't know like for you is that that you know when you talk about learning is that the same kind of thing with with students that you have to keep in mind is the context of being with them and doing something for three hours in an outdoor education class for example and the students you have coming into your program versus uh going going out on um, a certain landscape for a certain amount of time where you're required to, to think about your relationships or the, the, the existing relations that are there prior uh, while you're there and prior to going? Yeah, that's a good, really good question. I'm actually have been uh, struggling a little bit with that this week because I'm, I meet my outdoor education class once a week for three hours. And um, actually tomorrow we're doing a three-hour uh, canoe day uh, over on Scanner Lake in Regina. And it mm-hmm. becomes very skill-based because when I take students on longer journeys, the first couple of days are, you know, like refreshing the skills and making sure we know what to bring and building our relationship together where then we go and apply them and translate them somewhere else. And the environment's different, but we prepared to have that transition to an environment that we can learn from, but here it's like becomes much more skilled and then there's not time to then build on top of it. We will then after this week move into talking about like next week, we're going to do um, shelter building and uh, like fire building. So it's a totally different activity. And then it it all sort of relates, but it doesn't, (laughs) it's all different, different skills. So, um, I guess it's so important to have a good shelter. <laughs> and uh, I, I, my, my philosophy now is like, I don't care if the sun's out, the tarp goes up. Like the tarp goes up. I, don't, I learned my lesson once and I'm like, it's sunny, tarp goes up, clotheslines, all of that. I, it goes out yeah, every it's time. It's always good to be prepared. Um, yeah, you always have to predict that it's going to rain so that uh, you're ready for yeah. when it does. And if it doesn't, then it's still a nice yes bonus bonus. (laughs) so these things are all connected to but in hopefully in the future um they'll bring them together in their own way but i guess as an educator trying to make situations where they have to try to bring them together or in while we meet three hours as a class and as a group and we're learning these skills giving them assignments or little tasks that they can do on their own where they might translate these skills on their own. So for example, I, in this course, all the students are doing a play study. So they're examining a place on their own and then they come to class and these activities and skills might prompt them to think differently in their place. So then I'm trying to nurture that more longer term thinking of becoming a good ancestor to the place where they're, where they're studying and hopefully we'll continue to visit after the course, but it's the skills that we're developing in class that can be translated. I, I really like that, uh, what you just said there, like becoming a good mm-hmm. ancestor, because it stresses a relationship over time. And mm-hmm. even in sense of, of a spiritual, like even like, so when I'm gone as an ancestor, my spirit, like may my spirit be, in good relationship to this land. And mm. I know in your works, you, you talk about again, in that, in that piece, the, the book chapter, working mm. with elder uh, Bob Cardinal and, and Dr. Dwayne Donald and thinking about um, uh, you frame it through four different directions, North, South, uh, East, West. And um, what you do talk about trouble, your own relationship to thinking through the concept of spirituality in a, a non-religious denomin- denominational or institutional way, mm-hmm. but how it's important. And you come back to that concept of, of uh, spirit again in your different pieces. So, um, yeah, I was just wondering how, what, you know, what have you learned in relation to uh, being able to share in the teachings of uh, Elder Cardinal and Dr. Dwayne Donald and in the piece that you took up uh, 
in the qualitative journal here, uh, just a second here, and it was called Spiritual Exchange, a Methodology for mm -hmm. a Living Inquiry with All Our Relations with Victoria Bouvier. I really enjoyed reading that piece. And I'm so glad like a journal like the International Journal mm -hmm. of Qualitative Methods published this because just to show a different a different way and but also addressing something that's so important in this concept of spirit spiritual exchange so spiritual exchange do you also take this up with students as part of your outdoor education or the concept of spirit uh with them in in light of the work that you've done vicky and i have worked uh on that spiritual exchange practice it started between us and then we've developed it into more of um, pedagogical process that we both tried to, we both have brought and employed into our teaching um, in undergraduate and graduate levels. Uh, but I go to go to the beginning of your question and that spirit. And I have learned from uh, Elder Cardinal and Dr. Donald about spirit being about honoring life and uh, daily practices that um, can honor where we are and who we are and the relationships around us. So I really try to bring that to students and to um, perhaps help them see the spirit more broadly. And Vicki and I, when we started the spiritual exchange together, it really began because um, we were both challenged by like Eurocentric forms of reading articles then writing papers and then going to a, like a seminar room where there were no windows and talking about those ideas, but it devoid, it was devoid of our relationships and outside of the classroom. And it really just privileged our minds. So we really wanted to develop something that could bring a whole body experience into our research together. And that invited those innate connections to the living world, but also a way that we could have meaningful conversations together across our physicians of difference. Um, Vicki is a Machif scholar. And we just, we started to share together in this way, just by sending, and in the article, it was like really through this connection that Vicki had with the crocus and that crocus spoke to her. And then we, she sent me a piece about it. And then I responded to her about but it took me a few weeks because I actually had to like spend time thinking about it. And it wasn't until I was out walking and had an encounter with, I think it was a, a tree that um, I could respond to her in a good way. So it really started by us together and then involving what was in our lives. And so now in our, in our practice, um, trying to bring this into pedagogy, we both have had assignments around the spiritual exchange where the students are in partners and they have to do this process together. And it's through the whole term. So the first couple of rounds, the students are like a bit shaky and they don't really understand it, but it really starts to open up the content in relationship to place and that it becomes a process and not just um, content of, you know, studying decolonization in a textbook, but looking at, looking at it in our place and looking at examples of who we are and what are, it's our role and who are our relatives. So it's, try, we're trying to broaden the conception of spirituality to honor life. And I think to that idea of like sacred ecology of that, that it's a mystery at first and that we have to, it's something that we have to grow into um, as students and educators. I would I would hope, but I'd also be interested to see how the students that you have mm -hmm. encounters with in, in terms of taking this up and relationships, <laughs> uh, how they then, like, do they take it up later? And if they do, how so? And in, you know, five, mm -hmm. six years, do they think about back about like, look, I had these experiences in this course and it's, 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 it's called on me to do, mm -hmm. perhaps maybe think about outdoor ed a little bit differently and do outdoor ed a little bit differently. And I don't even know if I'm, you know, when I say outdoor education, if that maybe is the best best framing too in terms of what you both mm -hmm. mean in this piece. Uh, just briefly, I just I, you both say here just in outlining the four four different aspects of of what you put forward. You say first, mm -hmm. there needs to be a belief in the presence and intelligence and spirit of all beings, and that we are all active subjects interacting to create knowing. Second, we need to acknowledge the ritual, the repeated continuous behaviors of honoring our connectedness 
connectedness to all of creation. Uh, to truly honor the ritual of this inquiry, the process requires continuous reflection, as you said, and a temporal commitment to enact ethical relations in our everyday as to become a way of life. Third, gifting the practice of proper protocol based on a specific research context. So you give examples like offering tobacco, food, prayer, ensures that we are engaging in reciprocity as these actions are the tendons of our relationships. I love that saying, the tendons of our relationships. And uh, lastly, the key is enacting this inquiry and the recognition that we are always in and working through kinship relationships with all beings. <laughs> Moreover, we need to acknowledge the inherent tensions and complexities present in living our relationships with care and ethics. So just that's so beautifully said. And in the piece, you provide um, a diagram of a, a framework where you have the crocus in the middle. And then so you have kinship, presencing, ritual and gifting. And, uh, you know, I just want to come back again to to your transition now from like you've moved from Ontario. You've gone out out mm -hmm. to Calgary. You've been moving around out there talking about that now you're in Regina like in those four areas in terms of gifting presencing and ritual and kinship like do you have rituals that you carry with you everywhere in terms of that approach or do you find that when you come to a different place that the the relations in that place or the that already exist do they shift and change the kind of you know ways in which you're thinking about kinship presencing ritual and gifting um, yeah, I know you mentioned you look, you went up to Fort Capel last weekend, you're planning on going up again mm -hmm. uh, to Treaty 4 mm -hmm. and uh, the Capel Valley, which is beautiful. Uh, um, yeah, so mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'm just curious, like, uh, you know, again, like, I'm like, hey, have you pulled this? Have you pulled this piece out? And are you thinking about <laughs> these things in terms and, and like, I know you just started, like, it's the opening semester, and you're gonna go canoe with the students. But, but uh, yeah, I just wondering how you as um, Jennifer McDonald, the researcher <laughs> and teacher, are implicated in these four things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for, um, it's a great question. And um, Vicky and I still work on this all the time. And we were actually just talking yesterday. And we actually have a book manuscript that oh, we're working so on. So excited. Uh, with student chapters, um, student chapters taking up the process. And uh, these students have worked with us. And then just going back to like how that was like the first time I did this was 2020. It was the winter of 2020. And it was through this process that a lot of them said, you know, like that helped me survive the pandemic or it helped me, like wow. it compared me. And it, you know, like, how did you know that was going to happen? <laughs> like, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't ask for a pandemic. Um, but, um, I think those four presencing, ritual, gifting, kinship, um, all are processes on their own. And uh, sometimes I have encountered that ritual also brings specific connotations with it as spiritual does. And when students read that piece about what ritual is, they think it has to be something specific, like that has to be something cultural. And for mm. us, it was just about being a repetitive practice. So finding something that works for you, that helps you slow down if we're going back to that, but yeah. um, feel, feel full to yourself and feel enchanted in the world and help you see relationships and connections. So what are repetitive practices that we can do? For me, it's been walking um, and my, and I guess in this new place, uh, I, I don't want to say walking to work, but that's kind of what it's been so <laughs> far. <laughs> uh, but also, I mentioned that I'm fortunate to be facing east and I see the sunrise every morning. And that is sort of in my one practice of ritual of making sure I get up for the sunrise, but also connects me for, um, it connects me to where I am and when I'm here because the sunrise, it's always shifting based on time and the temporal cycles of the earth. So when I first arrived here, the sun woke me up at like 4.30, like 4.45. Now it's like almost, it's about 6.30. So I'm really connected yeah. to that cycle. And I think just the sky here has just taught me so much. Um, it's so expansive. And at first I felt like I was walking around, like there were moments where I, I uh, like, I just felt like I could, I could cry at any moment. It's not like I was stressed or anything, but I just like couldn't really name it. And it was like the opposite of being claustrophobic. It was just like so big that I, 
I can't really find my place in it yet. So mm. I think it's been the sky for me so far that has helped me feel grounded and yeah. taking moments to just be with that. Um, and also there is a lake that I like try to sit by, but I know that the lake is man-made. So I kind of like, there's like <laughs> a lot of trouble there for me. So I'm like, Oh, what does this mean for like <laughs> my Eurocentric imagination of what places, but <laughs> Hey, uh, I mean, one could say the same thing about the Mississippi River because mm. the Army Corps of engineers have diverted it off a certain way or stopped it from migrating, right, mm -hmm. back and forth and caused its own problems. But, you know, you said, like, you know, that that sense of, uh, I don't know if this, I don't know if you would have used this term, like melancholia or just overwhelmness mm. of, of not necessarily having um, a sense of any markers. Like, because you said it was just, like, so open. And I wondered... I wondered if you live if you lived there long enough, would you would would you would your interpretation or reading of the landscape be in in such a way that you could see the markers that others couldn't to give you a sense of of being from and uh, from that place like for some time? I don't mm. like I don't know. I just I I I, I wonder, and I, and I ask that question because I like coming back to your first piece uh, piece about like maps and grids like. Um, Lorianne makes fun of me because I like I'll use you know Google uh, Maps to get somewhere, and she's like, "Don't you know the street?" And she's very, she's always been very grid oriented, and she knows, but Northwest and stuff, um, a lot better sense of direction in terms of that. But I grew up in Northern Ontario, and you kind of just it was your, it was your neighborhood. Like I, I mean, I could go a hundred kilometers and go to a lake, but I knew the lake and I knew the rivers and I knew where to go. And if you were with a, a a boat that had a motor on it you knew where the rocks were because you've seen enough people hit them so it was just like a time over time you get to know but we didn't name like i didn't know like hey i'm heading north or south maybe that should have been on me i just knew like i'm going to this place and like i know how to get there <laughs> like that's and i know where yeah. the sun goes down over those trees and what time it's gonna get dark based on the, on the season like if it's you know the in the summer uh at least up there you, you know you're good till 10 10 30 at night before the sun hits uh behind the tree line sometimes that was the other thing too uh, mm -hmm. for jonah and i i'm wondering about that in terms of regina as opposed to calgary and i have no clue in calgary because i haven't been long enough there long enough to look <laughs> at the night but but here in ottawa uh, it's so hard to see like a, a really good view of the stars at night and jonah and i one night like it was after there was a big storm that came through and a couple days later it was pretty cool but it was like we were in the tent. We were, you know, we were, we were having our, our ritual cribbage game each night and uh, went out. And I'm like, you need to come outside. The stars, like, I'm Jonah, you'll never, ever see the stars this bright maybe again. And he came out and he couldn't believe it. Like, we could see the Milky Way. It seemed like so close. The stars were so defined. It was so bright. And I haven't seen stars like that in a long, long time. So I'm just wondering, is that this, you know, I don't know what the skies when you say the skies in Regina, but uh, yeah, I'm just mm -hmm. curious, like in terms of, of, of what you shared there, <clears throat> those kind of experiences of, of, of being new to a place and, and the markers or markers that give you a sense of being from that place is, and, and the kind of overwhelm, overwhelmingness of, if, of mm. I, like, I don't, I don't know. So that's why I'm curious. I, I'm just wondering. <laughs> yeah, I, it's so interesting um, because a couple of weeks ago, in my outdoor ed class, we had an opportunity to share stories about places we feel connected to. And at first the students like, were like, what is she? <laughs> and even after they they were posting on our, our course forum that at first they cringed the question, but once they thought about it, they could feel like they could think about places they felt connected to. And in those conversations with them, I shared my coming to coming to Regina and how I ended up here, but also that feeling that I have sometimes when I'm walking around and I just feel overwhelmed and it, it's really emotional. Cause I just, mm. I just can't find like my roots here. But then the students shared that they felt like that when they went to the mountains or that they felt like that when they were standing by big bodies of water. And I was like, Oh, wow. like how interesting. So we, um, that, being in conversation with them about their markers of place made me sort of made me think about this place differently. 
And for many of them, they've lived in rural settings and coming to Virginia is the big city for them. And for me, it was coming to a smaller city. So listening to their experiences and moving here and the things that they're struggling with or finding inspiration with in the city um, is also sort of an opposite to me. But I love that you shared yeah. that about the sky in Algonquin and um, Sefli when I've spent time there and I spent time there this summer with um, my friend Scott and uh, he's a big photographer. So it's always getting up at certain times of the night to maybe see the Aurora Borealis. Like we have an app that we follow and, um, and also getting for the sunrise. And, but in Regina, what has struck me so far is that once you leave the city, like you're sort of just out there. And I have had, <laughs> like, I literally can ride my bike 10 minutes and at night and like be away from city lights. So I only have the goal for a fridge to be able to see the night sky like I can in Algonquin Park. So that has been, um, I guess that's a yeah. grounding piece, although it's very solitary, solitary right now that I go and watch the stars. And one night there were northern lights in the distance so that was lovely but I that idea of like the night and that being something like a connection it reminded me of driving here and driving from Calgary to Regina in that weekend after the defense and driving into like just an like I don't want to say it's empty because it's not it's just there's things that relationships that I don't know about yet but I had this feeling of driving beside the ocean. And as a youngster, we used to drive east um, when I was growing up to um, the Gas Bay in Quebec. And um, like the, we have family there. So, and I had the same feeling of, and a lot of those memories were like emerging for me because we used to drive beside the ocean and being on the prairie was kind of like the same sort of expanses the ocean. So I was drawing a lot of similarities and resonances there and all these memories kept flooding up. So there are things that through memories and connections to other places that seem to be coming back to me here, which is also I find interesting because I don't often think of those moments of being on those car trips. So it's, it's interesting how memory plays into our sense of place as well. Yeah. And, and having certain as you said, expectations, right? Like uh, for students, even the mm. way questions might be framed in a, the context of a classroom and how you're expected to respond as opposed to trying mm. to, at least I see in your work, trying to kind of disrupt that in, in mm. the kinds of prior relationships that the potential students that you, you're afforded uh, an opportunity to work with Work, working through that with them, but I see that you know what I what I really appreciate in terms of the works you sent me, and and also your your thesis work, which I hope I hope you're you're planning on publishing that it's going to come out. Is that <laughs> <laughs> what I love is you offer like a a, a a meta a meta analysis and synthesis of your of your interconnectedness in in this work and and how you're on like it's an ongoing project for you, and I would not ongoing, like ongoing projects, the, the, it's the wrong word. Mm. Cause it's like, you're working on yourself. It's like, there's an end point, but more like coming back to the, the work that you're doing with, uh, uh, with Victoria is that, uh, that, that sense of ritual. So I see even in, in, in you bringing that sensibility mm. of, of, uh, ritual and kinship and presencing and gifting to the way in which you approach your teaching and your work. So um, and your writing. So I, 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 I it just, it was so good to kind of, uh, for me to see that interconnection or the, the evolution of what you've been working on, but, but still kind of a stick withedness in terms of your, your inner, in a mm. ritualistic way of coming back to the work that you're doing. Um, I don't know if you get a sense of that when you, when you're kind of like, when you find yourself like doing a new project mm. or somewhere else, but you, you keep coming back to maybe similar questions that you've asked, but in relation to maybe the different places that you're living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. The, when I was sending you some of those articles and I had a look at them, I was like, Oh, I was asking the same sort of question back like six years ago, but it's obviously it's a bit more sophisticated now. <laughs> and, um, but I, 
I'm not sure if I finished my response to the four areas before, but that gifting part is really important in like the sacrifice that's involved in the gift. And I think when coming to these places and being vulnerable um, or coming to a new place, that there has to be a sense of vulnerability that comes, that is like part of the gifting and the struggle of finding my way. Because if I came here, think like already having a relationship and a strong connection, then it would be a bit, it would be very humble. So that I think the students, when they shared with me their stories of how they ended up here or their connections to here, and after also told me that the question made them cringe at first until we unpacked it a bit more is also a gift in that sense because it really helped me want to think about how to frame questions to get them to there a bit quicker but also that it helped me listen differently to what this place has to offer if that I hope that that makes sense to you but I that there that there was a lot of gifting in that situation in that context. Yeah. And I, I think what I appreciate about the way in which you frame gifting in relation to the other uh, dimensions of that, that piece is the fact that you're going up to uh, Treaty 4 and last weekend and again this weekend mm-hmm. and to understand. And, and I, I'm, I'm trying to understand this better in terms of my own relations of growing up in Treaty 9 is that the mm-hmm. fact that different First Nations communities who signed Treaty 9 that still is not acknowledged enough in terms of that that place is that that's an important gift uh, in terms of gifting the very possibility mm-hmm. of being where we are, uh, if that makes sense. So, I mean, there, there's already been in place, at least from what I understand, in terms of Treaty 4, a gift um, in the establishment of Treaty 4 to even afford us possibilities as non-First Nations or the non-traditional ancestors um, from those places to be privy to be there in the first place. So I just, yeah, your, your piece and the conversation that you shared today is helping me to try to mm-hmm. rethink about the giftedness and gifting in relation in light of that. And then, it, you know, what does that mean then for being here in the, the Kitchissippi Valley on the Algonquin's traditional and Sita and surrendered territories? Like how do, how might we think about mm-hmm. that in a different way moving moving like living now in terms of presencing, but moving, moving forward as well in terms of our relations with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love um, that you mentioned treaty four and treaty nine and the ways in which I have been taught as well, the treaty going beyond physical or material pieces. It's also, there's so much wisdom yeah. in that treaty that um, has been gifted to us and um, that has been ignored, but if we look at indigenous interpretations of treaty and even last week at the powwow, the knowledge holders there and elders were speaking to that wisdom and what it meant to be all be there together in that space at that time. And just thinking about good relationships and how we can exist together um, and coexist together meaningfully and what gifts we have to provide. And I think I've been thinking a lot as I, continue down my understanding, deepening my understanding of treaty and my rights and responsibilities is that I need to know my particular role in that treaty. And I can't try to do everything. Um, but what can I do today to like get that knowledge on someone else or to um, take care of my relatives in my surroundings and come to know them better as relatives. So I guess that's another way, just really trying to figure out that role that I have in uh, the treaty. Mm-hmm. Well, thank thank you so much for joining us yeah. on Fukin Conversation today, Jennifer. And <laughs> I certainly want to have a conversation with you again, uh, at maybe at the end of this year or next year to see, are those <laughs> feelings in relation to place the same? And where, you know, how things went with your students this year uh, in terms of, you know, you're taking up canoeing, I think this week, but then <laughs> where, 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 yeah, we'll see. where you all get, wait, I will uh, have a vote, maybe the class, how many are, uh, tarps up no matter what, and how many tarps up only if it seems like it's going to rain, <laughs> just that bowl. But <laughs> thanks again yeah. for, for, uh, taking the time to share, uh, your wisdom and gifts, uh, in terms of the work that you're doing today. Mm. And I'm just wishing you the best of luck, uh, with this semester and your transition to yeah, Regina. Yeah, thanks you.
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was uh, an honor to talk to you again, and I know we haven't seen each other from since my or virtually since my my um, defense. So it was nice to have an opportunity to talk to you again and share some of the work and be reminded that I want to come back to this and <laughs> work on it a bit more. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it when, like I said, I'm going to look forward to reading it when it's out in print in whatever form. <laughs> for sure. <laughs>